I don't really care about Democrat or Republican. I care about who are the elected officials that are going to prioritize our communities and pass the policies that they need to be able to live, you know, a life in full dignity. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Emily Persaud Zamora, who serves as the executive director of Silver State Voices, the C3 Civic Engagement Table in Nevada. Previously, she served as the Nevada State Coordinator for SEIU's immigration campaign, I America, and as the Nevada C4 Director for Mi Familia Vota. Emily is a graduate of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, with a BA in political science. We spoke about her career, her organization, and politics in the state of Nevada. Silver State Voices is part of the State Voices Network. I have a prior interview with the CEO of the network, Alexis Anderson-Reed, as well. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Emily Prasad Zamora of Silver State Voices. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Emily Prasad Zamora, and I'm the executive director of Silver State Voices. Silver State Voices is a civic engagement table of organizations that have 501c3 status, so nonprofit, nonpartisan, uh, that do civic engagement work in the state of Nevada. I've served as the director for four years now. I have a team of 12 individuals uh, that I work with each and every day. But prior to this role, I worked for SEIU International, the Service Employees International Union, running their immigration campaign in the state of Nevada. Um, And I have also worked with Mi Familia Vota uh, as their C4 campaign director in the state of Nevada. And I've been in and out of politics, I would say, since 2008. When I'm not working, I am a mom to a six-year-old. And when I'm not in the pandemic, you can find me trying to escape and planning my next travel adventure. Well, I I hope you are able to do that next travel adventure soon. You must uh, have come to know a thing or two about Nevada politics at this point. I would say so. How is Nevada different than the rest of the country? Well, I think there are a couple of things that differentiate us from the rest of of the United States. I'd say one thing is that we are a deep reflection of what the rest of the country should 
look at as when we're talking about representation. Nevada has the most amount of women elected officials uh, compared to any other state. And I think that that is reflective in the policies that we have. What's different is that, you know, the people here in our state organizations, grassroots organizations have worked really hard to ensure that they they have a voice, that it's not only elected officials and corporate lobbyists that are have a say in policy, but that those grassroots organizations that work with community have built relationships with elected officials so that they can work with them and also hold them accountable. Did you uh, grow up in, in Nevada? I actually was born in Queens, New York, um, specifically Astoria. Um, I lived there until I was about 15 and a half. So I got most of my, <laughs> my childhood there um, and then came here once I was 15 and a half. Yeah. My my wife is from Astoria, Queens, also. Oh, yeah. she's cool. Chin- Chinese American, but oh, from there, yeah. Cool. Uh, but you went to college in your state here. Right? Yes, I graduated from UNLV um, with with a bachelor's uh, in political science. So, um, had my collegiate experience here. How was that for you? What did you study? Um, I studied political science, and I wanted to major in theater, but I am the child of two immigrants. Uh, my mother is an immigrant from Brazil, and my father is an immigrant from Guyana. And I was very clear to me that something like theater would not be an option, right? Like being the uh, child of an immigrant, you always have that pressure that you know, your parents sacrificed everything for you and you need to, you know, do better. And so um, I gained an interest in politics in high school. I was on the speech and debate team. Um, and so really started getting a, more interested on like current events, political issues. Uh, and so just figured like, okay, I'm, I'm going to major in political science. And <laughs> that's how it ended up going. Um, besides that, um, during my time at UNLV as well, I also pledged uh, Sigma Theta Psi Multicultural Sorority that really helped mold my experience and helped gain a lot of the leadership skills that have helped me in my career right now. What made it multicultural? What was different about it than other groups like that on campus? What really made it multicultural is like the people who joined it, right? It, you don't really have, you know, my sorority sisters don't all just look like me. We had a good amount that were API, that are Black, that are Hispanic Latina, who are white, who are Indigenous. What I really valued about that, you know, when I was looking at sororities, I, I'm mixed. Um, and I felt that going with a traditional Latina sorority or an Asian sorority would be taking away from one half of me. Um, and so being in a mix with lots of other people, I think it's just really learning so much about different cultures and really also learning how to work with different people. We all of different cultures are raised different ways, right? And so I think it really taught me how, how to work with people who I may not just maybe hang out with on a regular basis, right? Or may have not grown up the same way um, as me. 
I mean, you've ended up on the progressive side. How did that sort out? At what point did that identification with the left, the Democratic Party, progressives take place? Growing up, I remember that both of my parents, once they became citizens, you know, I always kind of remember them talking about being associated with the Democratic Party. That was kind of maybe my first clue. When I moved from New York to here, there was a very stark difference for me. I went to high school at Louis D. Brandeis, which is like West 84. You had a very big mix of folks that either went from like Washington Heights to Harlem and lots of different neighborhoods like that. And when I came to Nevada, the high school that I went to was called Palo Verde High School, which is located in Summerlin, had very wealthy, very white, affluent neighborhood. It was very just clear to me that that's not me. I also really just saw that, you know, a lot of the people that I went to school with just didn't really have the same values as me. Um, And I think that just like learning, right, that I realized that personally, my values aligned more within the Democratic Party, within progressives. I think as a professional, I have really seen that although I personally, on my own time, probably vote for one party more than the other, I don't believe that any political party is the key to liberating any particular community. And so that's why my work I have preferred to be, yes, progressive leaning, but doing it in a nonpartisan hat. Yeah, it makes sense. Tell me how after college you entered the workforce. I didn't enter immediately. One thing about me is that I'm not that traditional student that graduated college in four years. Like I had to work part time the whole entire time. I'm the first person in my family to graduate with a bachelor's degree. And so I I had to pay for a lot of my, I took out student loans, but also had to pay for some of my experience. So I graduated more like in five and a half years. I didn't get right into the mix during uh, my time of still going part time. I had a stint at the legislature. I worked for an assemblyman and worked at the legislative building. And I realized that was just not the side of politics that I wanted. I think that I prefer, and even though in this state and age of the position that I have, I'm not you know on the streets in the field every single day, I prefer that I'm rooted in community. And I didn't think that that was the best experience for me. Through a friend, he talked to me about Mi Familia Vota. And, uh, you know, it was just like, you know, we're hiring for Canvas leads. I think you'd be great. And gave me an interview. And I don't think I ever really thought that I knew what I was walking into. But, you know, I got the position and I started out as a Canvas lead for their voter registration program. And it was honestly one of the best experiences that I have ever had. Um, It really gave me the opportunity to train canvassers on how to talk about their stories, on how to talk about their experiences, and to make that connection with just regular human beings that they see on a day-to-day basis and explain to them why it's so important that they register to vote, to get them registered, and to really show 
like our canvassers, right, that like we can make this huge impact in our state by registering people within our communities. So that particular year, we had registered over 19,000 individuals. And it was it was an amazing experience. I recently interviewed Hector Sanchez Barba. And previously, I talked to Esteban Garces. I don't know if you ran into either of them, but up at the you know, at the national level or out in Florida, it does seem like a pretty key organization. Yeah, I definitely learned a lot working there. I now in my current role, I get to work with the Nevada affiliate on a day-to-day basis. And I do think that they are definitely integral within the Latino, Latina, Latinx community here in Nevada. And what did you do next after, after Mi Familia? After Mi Familia Vota, um, unfortunately, due to the campaign world, it's a, a very boom and bust. So I was laid off and I went back into the corporate world for a couple of years um, and worked for a timeshare company, but was truly unhappy uh, during that time, I became a mom. Um, and after my son was a couple months old, I decided that it was time for me to go back into the political arena. Then I joined um, SCIU. Uh, it was definitely really interesting to be in, in a union atmosphere. What I really loved is that I got the opportunity to work with union members, but also on an issue that was really important, immigration. There were lots of different key things that we did, such as like citizenship workshops, right? Um, Getting folks to go through that process so that they could become, you know, U.S. citizens and that they could participate in, in the electorate and really having key conversations on how we need to move immigration policy in the state of Nevada. Till this day, that was several years ago, but immigration is still such a huge topic in the state of Nevada due to the community that we have here. What what were the years you were at SEIU? Um, From 2015 to mid-2017. So you were definitely in the world of immigration right as Trump was coming up, playing the negative card on, on immigration to try to rise to power. What was your lens on that? How did you see him along the way? It was really difficult. I think that that has been one of the most difficult situations to to experience. There were days that I just, I didn't even want to get out of bed. You know, I'm not an immigrant, but I have immigrant parents. I'm married to an immigrant. And the people that we work with on a day-to-day basis are immigrants and it was really depressing. Yeah. Uh, and I think, For me too. Yeah. In the progressive movement, all of the work is hard. But one of the areas that is definitely the most difficult is definitely immigration. And whether you're an organizer or whether you're an attorney or whatever your role is in that ecosystem, the emotional burden that you experience is, is so difficult. Unfortunately, our program had to dwindle down due to funding, right? Because of the the changes in the administration, it was hard. Like we had people calling us, like, "What is going to happen to me? 
you know, I have DACA or I'm on TPS and what's going to happen? Like, what can you tell me? And I think it's, it's really difficult to be able to look people in the eye and say, I don't know. We're going to do whatever we basically can to, to fight for you. But knowing that we have this person in the White House that doesn't support people that look like you, you know, we need to brace ourselves and be prepared for the worst. From a national level, it had been so frustrating on policy that we'd come close to immigration reform a couple of times. People thought it was going to happen in some way, form or fashion and didn't. And then then you really have this move in the other direction with people in the White House just openly working to squash immigration and to demonize uh, recent immigrants anyway. For me, it was just one of many issues that were heartbreaking, but it was definitely a key one. You've survived that period, um, but you know, it's, I can hear in your voice that it still affects you. Yeah. Most people don't understand the immigration system in the United States. It takes a lot of education to really understand how messed up our system is. You know, you said it yourself, you know, we've been close beforehand, but I think people need to really take the politics out of the issue and really understand why people come to the United States in the first place. No immigrant comes here because they just want a free ride, a free ticket, or what have you. You know, a majority of immigrants are coming to the United States because the situation that they have back home is not a good one. Whether they are escaping, you know, civil war within their country or gang violence or drug infestation or some type of dictatorship or what have you. I can bet you if you ask some any immigrant, like, why did you come here? They're not going to say, oh, because, you know, it, it's Welfare. cool. Yeah, like <laughs> I want to. You know, my mother-in-law um, has been in the United States for almost 30 years now. You know, she still misses home so much. And home for her is Mexico. She misses home so much. But she knows that coming to the United States was the best step for her son. Her son would have never had the opportunities that he's had in the United States if she didn't come here. And I think that that's something that people really need to think about more in depth when they're thinking about immigrants. My family, uh, Jewish family on both sides, came from Eastern Europe and Ukraine, escaping very bad conditions for Jews and did it a little earlier than your family. But there's nothing that was more important in our family history than getting out of that part of the world to a part that over time you hope you're welcomed in and, and become a part of. Yeah. And I think, you know, you touch on a really good point because I think there's this whole narrative, right, that there are a lot of white immigrants, white folks now, right, that their ancestors immigrated, whether it was their parents or grandparents. or All of us. Right? <laughs> because the land that we live in is the land of the Native American community. And there's this, you know, narrative now that a lot of white folks 
or even people of color that are multi-generational now here that, you know, people need to come into the country the right way. What is the right way? The right way is trying to apply for a visa, but only so many people can, right? And you can only have certain types of family members try to petition for you. That's not an equitable system. And depending what country you're coming from, if you're coming from the Philippines, if you're coming from Mexico, you have a really, really long wait. And if your decision is, do I go, right? And do it maybe not the the right legal way, but I go and I find a job so that I can put food on the table for my kids or I stay and I get killed by the police in my country because of whatever is happening, then I don't blame any parent or any individual for making the choice of doing it that way. It's completely understandable to escape tyranny of different types. In fact, we should have a system of welcoming. We should have a system of integrating people into society in a proactive way. Through my business, I had sponsored a number of people, and it it was over a decade, the process. A friend of mine from Nigeria, getting him through the process was in excess of 10 years of fees and paperwork, and him knowing that if he went back to his village that he would be in danger uh, the whole time and worrying. So uh, I've, I've seen it from different angles. What came next after SEIU for you? Um, so this position, so I have been the executive director of Silver State Voices for four years. During my time at SEIU, I really became just upset about the outcome of the election. I want to be really clear to the listeners. I don't really care about Democrat or Republican. I care about who are the elected officials that are going to prioritize our communities and pass the policies that they need to be able to live, you know, a life in full dignity. You run a C3 yes. institution, which is a nonprofit category, which is not able to be partisan. And that may be somewhat connected to what you're saying. Part of the way we organize our politics is around tax categories, uh, isn't it? So what does Silver State Voices do? What is its job? So our job is to really be kind of the the infrastructure for organizations that are in the weeds, in there organizing with communities on a day-to-day basis on on whatever issue it is. We have 19 organizations that are table partners, and we really serve as that that support system to them, working with them, building out their plans, um, working with them to help fundraise um, for their programs, working with them to provide whatever data infrastructure tools that they may need to be successful. And what I really love about Silver State Voices is that all of our partners work with either different communities or different issues. We have folks that are dedicated to the AAPI community. We have folks that 
work specifically with Black women on reproductive justice and economic justice issues. But all of these organizations come together because they know that white heterosexual men have been at the forefront of democracy. The communities that they work with have not. And in order for their communities to really be at the forefront of the democracy, we have to do things like voter registration, getting folks educated on what's on the ballot, getting folks to turn out, getting them to care, uh, be educated on redistricting. So culminating all of these things together so that their communities are educated and are able to have a voice uh, in our particular state. 19 organizations, that's a lot of cats to herd, I guess. Give me some examples of the the mainstays of that table. One of our partners is Asian Community Development Council. We have the ACLU of Nevada. Um, I talked about Mi Familia Vota earlier. We have um, Institute for Progressive Nevada that really does a lot of communications work. We have organizations like Faith Organizing Alliance, the Las Vegas Indian Center, All Voting is Local. Um, we have Plant Parenthood, Rocky Mountains. We have Faith in Action, Nevada. Plan a Progressive Leadership Alliance of Nevada, Make It Work, Nevada. I may be missing a few here and well, there. Well, yeah, because you haven't got up to 19. But <laughs> are they all regular participants in this table? Is there a table? Is it like the round table? Yeah, yeah it, it it is a table, yes. And they are all regular participants. And I think that's one of the things that I really love about our structure here in the Nevada is that we don't keep it big. We keep it small so that we are working really in the weeds and intentionally with our partners um, and we have good, solid relationships. Well, there were two really big elections since you've been in 2018 and 2020. Yes. And the presidential election, your state was very, very close. It must have been a very dramatic place to be to be trying to run. Yeah. Um, the last election was definitely really stressful. It was multi-layered. Um, why it was stressful or chaotic here trying to run any type of campaign in a pandemic is difficult. Nevada, of all of the states, really faced some of the, the biggest blows to our, our state uh, because of COVID. At a certain point, we had the highest unemployment rate, about 28%. And so how do we sit here and talk to people about an election, whether it's registering to vote or you should care about who your state assembly person is or, or so on and so forth, when people have lost their job and they are not able to put food on the table and we're having issues with the unemployment system, people are not able to file, and so on and so forth. So that was really difficult. Another thing that was really difficult for our organizations is that we had a lot of national people make the decision that Nevada was not a tier one state when it came to funding. Did that mean that they thought it was pretty safe? For yeah. Democrats? Yeah. yeah that they even though they it's could. super close yeah yeah and that's the thing you said it exactly right like people who live in our state know that we are not a blue state we're not a red state we are a purple state right and 
you know, and it's not even one county over another. It, it is a very diverse state, but that also means that we're very politically diverse as well. Um, and there is no candidate here that should consider that Nevada is a safe win for them. And so that really affected things for us. And it was only towards like the end as always, that people start getting worried. Oh my gosh, things are looking so close. You know, here's some money. But funders, decision makers need to realize that you can't just throw money towards the end. If you want success in any issue, for any candidate, for any type of campaign, you have to invest way before. There's so much that that needs to be done. You know, we need to hire on the staff members, train teach all of these different things so that they're able to do a killer job and deliver victories at the end of the day. That's not just a here drop, you know, $500,000 uh, in September. Um, so you can hire a bunch of folks and do kind of a half job uh, in November. And that's something that as a state that we really, really suffer on because we don't really have that infrastructure. It's starting to grow of some more like in-state donors, but we don't actually have that. And what that does is that at the end of an election, if you're a canvasser and you're or an organizer and you were only contracted for so much, then you're going to leave, right? Because you don't have a job and you're going to try to find a job in another field, whether it's in a casino or something like that. And in the next election, you're not going to want to leave your good job that gives you health insurance, that gives you stability, that gives you hours. And so folks need to think about the longer haul. So during this couple cycles that you've been in charge of this organization, you've had some ability to make investment over the long term, and then you've had some influx of money towards the end. What would you say that are the main accomplishments? that you oversaw? I would say that one of my things that I'm the most proudest of, uh, when I became director of Silver State Voices, I had one staff member. Um, today, we are a team of 12 permanent staff members. That's quite uh, different. Yeah, very, very different. Before, you know, we... We didn't have a solid structure of like who's a table partner, what's the work that's going to be done. I don't also think that there was much input from partners on what's going to be done or what have you. I think we've developed an ecosystem that, yes, you know, we as a table may be kind of planning and drafting what a program may be in, but we need the input of our table partners that are going to be doing that work. What I'm the most proudest of is that we've really been able to support a lot of our partners and whether it's giving them the tools that they need or giving them funds so that they can hire folks, train them and keep them on staff. We're not perfect and there's still a long uh, way ahead, but I think that as a state, we're a lot better. I, I would say additionally, I think that what I am really, really proud of is some of the policy advances that we've been able to make in our state and having, you know, having an influence on that. We have, since I've been at the table, 
we have worked with a lot of legislators to really advance voting rights policies uh, within our state. Right now, you see so many states, Georgia, Texas, Arizona, who are trying to roll back protections on the the right to vote, not the privilege to vote, the right to vote. You know, here in Nevada, we're doing the opposite. We've restored the right, the automatic right to vote to formerly incarcerated individuals. So once you're released, even if you're on parole and or probation, you get your right back. We've implemented same-day voter registration. We've implemented automatic voter registration. Um, and these are all things that, you know, our partners have had a say in. And I'd say last thing is, you know, this last year as well, we were juggling the election, but we were also juggling the census. Um, and this was a, an uh, amazing way for our partners to engage, yes, with folks who are voters, but also to engage with folks who are non-voters um, and teach them about why the census is so important. And Nevada was the third state to beat the rate that it had in 2010. A lot of that was due to the work of our partners and the coordination that we had uh, to really push folks to fill out that census, even though it was a difficult time um, with the pandemic. I also wanted to include one more thing that I think is really important that I'm proud of. And I think in the progressive space, there is a lot of conversation around people of color, and making sure that impacted folks are in, in the space. And I think that one of my biggest takeaways is that I've really been able to, through my staff, we, every person on my staff is a person of color that comes from the communities that we work with. And we've also been really able to prioritize you know, smaller organizations that may not have that that support of a national that are BIPOC led, having a seat at the table and providing them resources, I think is something that I'm definitely really proud of. Silver State Voices is part of the National State Voices Network, right? Yes. And, and I had interviewed recently Alexis Anderson Reed, who is in charge nationally. What's the relationship between Silver State and the national? How is that working and how is she from your perspective? Yeah, you're, you're lucky you got to interview Alexis. She's amazing. So State Voices is a national net, network and we have 23 different uh, tables across the country that are part of the State Voices network. And for me, you know, although we're, you know, our own decision maker, you know, Silver State Voices decides the, the direction that we want to be in. I really love being part of this, uh, this network of people that are working to similar goals. And I think one of the biggest things that I value about it is that it's a great opportunity to, you know, meet and talk about our work and figure out what we can learn from each other, what has been done in Michigan that maybe we can be doing in Nevada, or what has Nevada done that folks in Montana can be doing. I really value that. You know, the State Voices Network has really, really grown under Alexis's leadership. She was a state director once upon a time. And I think that that brings so much value because she knows what it's like to be me, 
right? Maybe not every single experience that I've had, but she knows what it's like to be a table director. She knows what it's like to work with partners, the needs of partners. And that gives her a unique perspective. Um, And I think that under her leadership, she's really been able to, you know, be a larger advocate for state tables. And, you know, it's not just saying that uh, publicly, she has really, you know, I would say that there have been a couple situations that I really need to talk to someone. I've sent her texts and I know she has a busy schedule, but I've said like, hey, can you give me five minutes at some point today? I'm really going through this and I need somebody with your experience to just like walk it through with me. And she has. And I really think that she has the, you know, the national team from before she came in to since she's came in has really grown and that's a lot to do with her vision and she's also really helped financially support a lot of the tables the amount of money that we received from state voices before alexis into now has changed drastically and a lot of you know the work that we do and support to partners we couldn't have done without uh, state voices if you could make a big change in your world and, you know, whether it's more funding or better collaboration with other organizations or I don't know what, if you had the wand, what would you wave it to do? Ooh, that's a good, very good question. I think it's a couple of things. I would say national organizations should listen to state stakeholders. We live here every day. We know our states. Don't make decisions around programs in our state without our consultation. We know our state's best. More women of color are in this space and it's beautiful, but there needs to be more support around ensuring that women of color feel supported to do their jobs. Saying that you work with women of color or that you hire women of color should not be a talking point for folks. For a lot of even progressive organizations, it's it's a talking point. But the battles that women of color still face in all spaces, but especially in this space, is still not okay. There needs to be still a lot more changes. And I would say, listen to us, right? We know what we're talking about when we're talking about organizing our particular communities. Yes, of course, funding. Those are some of the the top things for me. One thing that came to me in the national news, or or maybe I read it in a Nevada paper, was the change in leadership in the party and controversy around a lot of people quitting. Did did that come to you? And do you have any, any observations about what's happening there? Well, I would say professionally, I don't really deal with that. Um, because, you know, I work for a nonpartisan organization. I think it's interesting to watch as a bystander. To me, I don't have any really feelings around the old, the new, what have you. Um, I think there's criticisms of both. What I will just say is that I do think that it's important to reflect on where Nevada is right now. A lot of where we're at today is because of a lot of the work that the old did do. I'm definitely always open for new leadership. But what I would say is that to anyone right that in the new leadership, 
make sure that you are really prioritizing communities of color in your work. I think it's always a a criticism of mine of political parties, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican party. And don't just use us as pictures in your lit or anything like that. Don't just hire us to be canvassers or organizers. Invest in us each and every day. It's not just a transactional relationship that you're coming to our doors every two or four years for a vote. 2022 is coming up pretty quick. What's at stake in Nevada in the election coming up? There's a lot at stake. Um, So we have Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, who is up for re-election. She's the first uh, Latina U.S. senator ever elected, and she will be up for re-election. All of the constitutional offices, so governor, attorney general, secretary of state, treasurer, controller, all of those positions are up for re-election. We also have... um, you know, some state Senate seats, uh, state assembly, school board, sheriff, district attorney offices. So it's going to be a really big election here. And, you know, what we will be facing is what is the voter appetite, right? We had a pretty good turnout, a little under 80% for this particular 2020 election. And we'll really need to just like, you know, do the education out there to folks so that they know that, yes, there is no president that is running for office, but all of these positions actually are really a lot more important for your day-to-day life and you need to participate in them. And so, again, going back to my earlier, you know, no candidate is solid. There's no blue, red solid here. It'll be interesting to see what all of the, the parties and the campaigns are really doing in our state. Is there a question that I should be asking you that I haven't? I think the question is, what makes Nevada so amazing? The answer to that question is really the people that live here on a day-to-day basis is what makes our state so amazing. You know, we have a huge indigenous community here in the state of Nevada. Um, We have the fastest growing AAPI community. We have a large Latinx community, and we have a growing Black community in the state of Nevada. We are one of the most diverse states in the United States, and that really, I think that melting pot really shows why our state is so amazing. And it's not just Las Vegas. Everybody talks about Las Vegas. Yes, I live in Las Vegas. I love it. But there are so many other parts to our state beyond that, right? We have 17 different counties from White Pine to Esmeralda to Elko um, to Nye County and, of course, Washoe County that all have their pieces that make our state the beautiful state that it is. With all that diversity politically and demographically, Trump still did very well, nearly won the state. Do you understand his appeal to some proportion of the population? I do. And I think it depends like what specific population we're talking about. But, you know, I think for some people, they see him and they see 
throwing away tradition in some shape or form. He's not your traditional uh, politician. He's not all refined, doesn't come from politics and all of that. And they see that they're able to connect with him in a different way. He speaks to them in a very simple fashion, uh, breaks it down in a very basic manner and gives them some type of, of hope. And I understand that. I can't knock people for that. But I would say that my biggest concern is that although this man represented those things, he also represented a huge slew of things that are really hurtful. We talked in depth, right, about his stances uh, on immigration. It's not only that particular issue. You know, he did so much harm to the environmental community. He did a lot of harm to indigenous communities. He did harm on education. I am so many different things, but the most important role that I have is being a mom. Like I am a mom to a six-year-old child who is special needs. Every time I think about it, honestly, I get so angry uh, and I get really emotional. But, you know, you remember that time that he mocked the reporter who was special needs and, you know, was doing the, the hand gestures. Like that was so infuriating to have somebody that, that thought that way and was vocal about it and doesn't really care about protecting children that are like that and need more support in our educational system and really all children, right? Choosing somebody like Betsy DeVos that cares about vouchers and doesn't care about the uh, public educational system and really somebody who doesn't respect women. How can we have a leader who does not respect pretty much the gender of ha- almost half of the country? That's that's not okay. Um, the way that he talked about women and the way that he just showed disrespect to women throughout his presidency is unacceptable. It's hard to put into words all of the all of the evil there, isn't it? Um. it- it is, yeah. I think that it it's also hard to to not think about it without getting emotional as well, because like it's I think it is in the past because he's not the president anymore. But the real reality is that those words, those actions, those things have a really long effect on people that he caused pain to. And he affected and continues to affect how we conduct politics nationally. And he's threatening to come back. And if he doesn't come back, the Republicans will find someone who is like him, it seems. So the fight goes on. How is this for you? Is this the right place for you? Is this something you want to do for a long time? How, how are you holding up? I love my organization. I love being able to work with my team on a day-to-day basis. I love our partners and not just working with the EDs. I love being able to visit in a non-pandemic times and meeting the canvassers and really being able to foster those relationships. I think that it's, it's hard. You asked me how I'm holding up. Um, being a woman of color leader is really hard 
I think many women of color have that mentality ingrained in them that they are supposed to try to please everyone, make everyone happy. And that's impossible, but it takes a toll on us because we want to do that. This last year, you know, being a director of such a large organization in a pandemic was really hard. And, you know, we chat a little bit offline, like I managed that and also managed having to do virtual kindergarten with my son every morning. And so I think right now, me personally, I'm a little tired. Um, Actually, not a little tired. I'm very tired. But when I look at all of the things that my community is going through, I forget about that tiredness. And I know that the work that I need to do, I need to just, you know, get over it drink my cup of coffee and get that energy and just, you know, keep doing the grind because there are people that depend on that need that, right? Like I, I just think I'm privileged in a certain way. Um, and I think about people that that had it like me once upon a time or had it like my mom and, and are trusting for others to, to advocate for, uh, for better. And so I think I'll be in this for for a little bit more. I don't know what the next road ahead looks like for me, but I do love being in the progressive space. Well, I feel privileged to have the chance to talk to you and to to talk to anyone who's in the fight, you know, in the way you are, because there's so much at stake for so many people. Is there anything else you want to say? I would just say that if folks want to learn a little bit more about Silver State Voices and all of the amazing work that our partners can do, if you're on Twitter, you can follow us. Our uh, Twitter handle is SSV underscore Envy. Please feel free to follow us um, and learn more about our work. That was Emily Persaud Zamora. She's at statevoices.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.